Welcome to another episode of Big Risk Energy. I'm your host, Roy Samuel. I'm a serial entrepreneur, having founded multiple businesses, including one that I scaled and sold to a gaming company in 2018. I've been an investor for the last five years, and I'm super passionate about neurodiversity, suffering from severe ADHD and dyslexia myself. On this podcast, we talk to an amazing range of people, from actors to academics, investors to entrepreneurs, politicians, musicians, scientists, professional athletes, and everyone in between. And we talk to these people about risk, risks they've taken in their lives, risks they've taken in their careers, when those paid off and when they didn't. And on today's show, I'm blessed to be joined by the one and only Lottie Amwin. Lottie is the founder of The Copy Club. She's the ex-global head of marketing for Popcorn and an all-round marketing guru. Lottie, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you. After that intro, I feel like an ill-equipped sports person or... I said everyone in between. <laughs> I'm in the in-between. I feel like there's a lot to you, though. I feel like already in the two minutes... Okay, I'm like spreading in the in-between. A hundred percent. I feel like in the two minutes that I've, I've spoken to you before this podcast, that there's a lot going on. So let's, let's start with that. Where does your relationship with risk and building things begin? Where, where, does, it all, where does it start for Lotto? I think... Firstly, I think they're different things. The building... Building things is a really interesting one. And I, I don't know the answer to where that begins, but I know it's always been in me. Um, I think thinking about what you did as a child to play is, is a really interesting way back into like, where are these themes? And, and my play would be to make worlds. So I would, um, like, I wouldn't just... Uh, like make the poster that the homework assignment was in primary school I would invent the entire school and write the curriculums and produce the textbooks and turn up on Monday with you know like literally what you would need to open Hogwarts (laughs) and I think that feeling of creation that was like paper mache on one day but but also like building something um that I think as a little girl got termed as bossy. I was quite quite quiet and quite forthright and stubborn and bossy. Bossy to use like the gender language you shouldn't sure. use anymore, but that's, that was definitely like the brush I got tarred with. Yeah. Um, was this feeling that I needed to create and I needed to make a place in the world. And that, I don't know where that came from. Um, I'd say some of that is in my father, but but not, not directly, like it did feel like a bit of an anomaly that I just like came out the womb quite so gritty. Yeah. <laughs> like <laughs> this sort of like little <laughs> child little that dug her heels into everything. Yeah. yeah, I don't know where that fight came from. Um, but I'd say that that's never, that's never not been there. And I have always given, I've always given everything like 150%. Mm. You know, I've had to, I've had to excel everything I chose to do and chose Mm. is the key thing if I don't choose to do something I'm so happy to be the worst in the world at it yeah but if I'm in I am all in and how does that play out because you can never be the best at everything right and I think one of the most painful things for people who want to be 150% want to be not necessarily perfectionist but achieve their full potential on anything they set their mind to how has that because for me personally at times when I don't hit that, it's like, oh, that's low. I mean, do you find that that's uh, often our superpower is also our Achilles heel? Do you ever find that? Um, I think I've done a lot of reflecting on what I'm good at. And I'd say that 
you know, like my team would be the testament of this, but I think as a leader, I am pretty clear on what I'm good at and very clear on what I'm not good at. And I don't think, which feels like a big call, that I bring a huge amount of ego to the way mm. I work with other people. Um, I, so, I, so I wouldn't say that I get plagued with frustration around things I can't do because yep. I'm kind of just like, well, let that go. Yeah. Um, I think what really resonates is the idea of like fulfilled potential, which to me is this like startlingly abstract concept that mm. I'm going to spend my whole life chasing, which is completely inarticulate by its nature. Yeah. And so, I, you know, I've set myself up for a life of chasing something that I'm never going to achieve. Yeah. And do you think, because I think that's uh, an incredible attribute in someone who is building and someone who wants to push things forward. But does it ever take a toll on other parts of your life? Because again, you know, in my own experience, that you know, laser focus on getting things done sometimes again. Oh yeah, I had a breakdown last year. I've talked a lot publicly about like the collateral damage on my mental health, the relationship on my friends, family. Um, yeah, I mean, everyone is everything is pushed to the side mm. of of the pursuit of the abstract. Yeah. Um, I think it's got a lot better. Like I've really, coming into my thirties, I've managed to like ebb that a bit and yeah. get some context and, and, and articulate a bit more what success looks like as opposed to just like abstract pursuit of nothing. Yeah, totally. And I think as well, like speaking to you, it's so clear that you have that love for that pursuit. Yeah, you know, I think <laughs> exactly. A, I love it. Yeah, I've, I've got zero doubt about <laughs> yeah. that. I think, you know, a lot of people I speak to, they are, putting that pressure on themselves without having that love. And I, I feel I feel like I want to say to those people, you don't need to do that. You don't need to um, sacrifice your happiness for something that isn't going to make you happy. You know, it, it's, it doesn't seem to yeah. make sense. But for you, for someone who loves it, like it's, it's clear why you would do well, that. Well, it's a really interesting observation. My dad had an um, awful, near, very, very near-death experience when he was 18 that really shaped his wow. entire kind of shaped the way he lives. Wow. What, and, what happened to um, my asking? He was in a car accident with some friends oh. and the friends all died and he was in a coma oh, and declared terrible. dead to his family. Yeah, it was, it was really, I mean, long before I was born. Sure. But I think it's given him a real appreciation for each day. Mm. And I think I, I really don't live for a future outcome. And that has shaped a lot about the way I do business. Like, I, I know that if the journey isn't worth it, then, like, there is no, mm. there is no, there is no necessary end goal. And, and that means, like, in a really basic sense, I don't have a business plan. Mm. Because to me, I'm like, well, that's not a priority. I'm like, of course it's a priority. But I just, like, kick it down the line. Because I'm like, well, what matters is that I know that what I'm doing right now is fun, is rewarding, and is moving in, in the direction that is exciting to me. Versus like, you know, the end, like a, a huge problem for my business at the moment is we don't have an end game. Mm. Because I find the idea of an end game really abstract and pretty privileged. Yeah, yeah. But I guess like if you are enjoying it for what it is, that is the end game in many ways, right? Enjoyment. Well, exactly. Yeah. What's wrong with building a lifestyle business? Nothing. I wish I had a lifestyle <laughs> business, genuinely. I think uh, if anything that I'm seeing in the world right now, this move away from hyperinflation of valuations and raising silly capital. Like, I think this is a good thing. And I think 
people's appreciation of the lifestyle business of people who aren't total fucking psychopaths sacrificing and burning everything in their way to build a unicorn rightfully should come back. And f like, if you want to go and build that unicorn, fair play. But your of odds of success are so low. Yeah. It's actually a really foolish way to try and make money. A hundred percent. Which I think no one, I, no well, one talks about. I like, say to everyone, if you want to make money, yeah. go into property. Yeah. Go into property or go into like a multinational and work in middle management and go and do your skin abroad. You know, and like, do pay your dues and, yes. and put cash in the bank and yes. build some investment. You know, if I think I said this on podcast previously, like if philosophy is the joy of thinking, entrepreneurialism should be the joy of building, not the joy of making money, right? And if you want to guarantee yourself making money, being a founder is one of the dumbest things that you can probably exactly. do. <laughs> yeah, and so enjoy the joy of building. Exactly. And if you're not, then, I mean, that's, that's for me just wouldn't be the right thing to do. Yeah, totally. So I want to know more about your story because you were global head of marketing for one of the fastest growing brands in proper corn. You know, you amazing position. I actually know uh, one of the founders, Bradley, Ryan? Ryan, Ryan yeah. Sorry, I was good. Bradley's his brother. I, I, I know them from like years and years yeah. ago. Um, awesome brand, obviously amazing trajectory. And you've now decided to take a portfolio approach at a very young age. It's something which we see people do much later in their career and you know, you're loving doing that. How did you feel about making that switch? Well, I mean, it's all a long time ago. So started my career at Procter & Gamble, did my like brand management, mm -hmm. like went in my suit and you know, looked at the slides and I absolutely had the time of my life. Like was so oh, cynical. Really? Yeah, oh yeah, I was so cynical that big business wasn't gonna be for me. Yeah. And then turned up and was like, I love this. I'm getting trained. I'm getting sent to Geneva to sit in a hotel room for a week to be taught marketing. You know, that sounds pretty good. That's yeah. pretty good. Like you get trained. And I don't think you can take that for granted. And so did that for a few years, but like was obviously way too high energy and was bouncing off the walls. Mm -hmm. So left to go and work at Propercorn was like head of marketing. But, you know, we were sitting around a kitchen table. It was pretty yeah. shambolic. <laughs> I was given the title because they needed to give me something that made me kind of distinct from people I was meant to be managing. But it was all pretty thin on the ground and was there for a few years and had like a mixed time. I found uh -huh. the crash landing into a startup brutal, which right, is where Coffee Club just came from. from like an insane yeah, because you've come from this machine where yeah. everyone thinks the same as you. Yes. You've gone through this recruitment process. It's basically like, were you hockey captain? Do you do everything extracurricular? Have you got five million A stars? Great. You're, you know, are you a natural leader? So much of a leader that you like bulldoze or anything? Mm. Great. And then you put all of these people in a room. They all think the same way. They all work so fast, so and there's no diversity of thought at all. Mm. But there's this pace, and then you go into another business, and it's like moving continents. Like the the way that you interact is completely different. The language is different. The way decisions are made are different. I was working with a head of design who is yeah. a phenomenally talented, talented woman, but I'd never interact, like I'd never encountered a designer before. So when I went, you know, I've sent you the spreadsheet, she was like, what? <laughs> and there was just no, like there was no common, common language and there was no support system. Yeah. And that, that's where I started Copy Club, which at the time was a supper right. club for people in marketing, literally because I was so abjectly lonely, it was destroying my sense of identity. Interesting. In what way were you lonely at that time? Well, a founder would say to me, what are we doing to support Tesco's? 
I never worked with Tesco's. I'd never worked with budgets that weren't 15 million. Sure. I was 24. I didn't have any friends and felt completely excluded because there was this like way of operating that wasn't a way I was part of. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, everyone would leave the office and there'd be like popcorn everywhere and kind of collateral damage. And I just sort of sit there like late into the night on YouTube, Googling stuff that there aren't answers to. Mm. And, it, you know, if you, if you go back to like, I was always building stuff. I was always a high achiever. That feeling of failure was just like earth shattering. It was like the first time in my life where I'd been really bad at something. Yeah. And I couldn't say to the boss, I have no idea. Yeah. What are, what are you going to do to help me with this? Because my, literally my job was to know the answer. Mm. And yet that's such a stitch up because that is a stitch up. there's no part of my CV that pretends I have the answer. You got hard done by there. I'll be honest. But I think that's what happens to literally everyone in early stage businesses who are underpaid over it's like interesting. I think it's such a which is literally the one of you know one of the problems that my business is trying to solve that's really interesting I mean I, I find that fascinating because one of my things with connected one of my things with real sport is I only ever believe in a fair exchange of value and time mm. we have never underpaid a person because like I see so many founders do this thing of oh once we raise the series a once we get there then you'll get paid well and it's bullshit it doesn't work Every single person connected has options. Like every single one of us is in this together. And it's why we have a 96% retention rate. Like people don't leave connected. Two people left connected, both asked for their jobs back within four months. Unfortunately, speed of the way that startups move, they can, one left for Warner Brothers, one left for Amazon, both wanted to come back within six months. Mm. But I I totally agree with you. And it's, um, I call them the uh, cultural founders in, in sheep's clothing right they'll say the right things but in reality they just treat you like shit and i'm yeah i don't want to slate proper corn i don't i don't blame i don't blame anyone yeah i don't think that anyone is doing the wrong thing Mm. i think everyone's just doing what they can in the situation they're in yeah and i think you know i feel that now i both personally as a founder but also part of what we do as a recruitment business so Mm. i see what happens and you know, it's a value equation that works for everyone. It's just everyone has to be really clear on why they're in it. Mm. So for me, moving to Propercorn, like I wasn't getting the right support, but I was getting the step into a startup role that I needed. I was learning loads and it had like that job put me in a great stead. I don't feel shafted by them. I just think it's a reality. Yeah. And I think there's some really quick it, how, do you, how do you create the quick wins that make that situation slightly better for everyone involved without too much skin off anyone's back? Because yeah. it's also a reality that there isn't cash to go around. And yeah. sometimes that's just what it is. Yeah, it's, it's a really, really interesting one. And you're right, there, there is often not the cash to go around. But I have always found that investing, overly investing in people, even when from a cash flow perspective, it doesn't seem to make sense, has always stood me well. Just because I think that there's two sides to it. One, if you give people the ability to grow, develop, earn as well, you know, most importantly, then they're going to, you know, be more committed to working for each other. You create that environment where everyone's in it together. And also, you're just on the hamster wheel of trying to replace people, which is less sustainable as a business. Yeah, and it's expensive. It's super expensive. Super expensive. Yeah. Well, okay, so... Went to Propercorn, mm-hmm. realized I was really lonely, 
and realized that there was no growth structure. So just to kind of play back into what you're saying, was given this marketing team who were phenomenal, still really close to both of them, really, really talented people. And my job was to make them better. And yet there was, there was no resources and, and there was nothing mm. in the industry to, to do. So at P&G, I got taken to the, the learning center. It was a building called the learning center wow. where we'd go and do learning. And they had this really clear framework that 70% of what you learned was on the job, 20% was from your manager, 10% was in a classroom, Oops. which I think makes a lot of sense. Yeah. And there's a lot of structure in it, but that 10% happened. You know, that was, a, that was part of it. It wasn't just what you learn on the job. And then I went to Propercore and I thought, right, well, this is what I want to do. I want to do the same structure because I believe in it. So that means that 10% of their learning needs to be in some kind of structured environment. Uh -huh. Cool. Guys, go off and find some courses, come back. And they come back and they're like, I found this course. It's like £3,712 plus that. And I'm like, there's absolutely no way I can ask the mm. business to invest that in someone who is earning 26K. Yeah. And clearly not. Yeah. So instead I'd go like, okay, I've bought you a book on Amazon and like, here's my mate that I've, you know, promised that you can go for coffee with and yeah. pat on the back like, bye. Yeah. And it just felt so woefully inadequate. Yeah. And that, and like really wrong, you know, it's like I'd had this incredible training just because I decided at a careers fair to go for a big business. And yet, because someone had made a slightly different life choice, they weren't going to get the same tools. They were just yeah. going to get no support ever. Yeah. It's like, this isn't cool. Um, and so that's when the, the supper club began to like evolve into more training opportunities and more structured sessions. So we'd run breakfasts on influencer marketing and just get 10 people together and say, right, what do you, I say we, I always do this when I'm telling the story. There was no we, it was just me. And, um, <laughs> you know, like what, what do you know about influencer marketing? And if 10 people say, I did yeah. this thing well and this thing badly, then you come out 10 times better informed. Absolutely. And just creating space where my team could take time out of their day and actually go to stuff. And, and crucially that I could. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so that was, that was evolving. I then left Propercorn three and a half years later. We doubled revenue. You know, I'd, I'd like done my time there. Yeah. And it had never, it had never felt like home. Um, which was important because, which was an important kind of learning because at P&G, I hadn't quite felt at home. I felt like everyone was coaching me into be someone I wasn't. Yes. Well, that is the other side of big corporates, right? They want you to fit their mold. But I think it's also the problem with anything. So I kind of left P&G because I thought, you're trying to make me into this, mm -hmm. this proctoid, as yep. they call them. And if I look <laughs> at the <laughs> senior leadership, like, I don't want to be any of you. Yeah, so yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm working as hard as I possibly can to be something I actively don't want to be. Like, I need to get out of here. And then I went to Propercorn, full of amazing, amazing people, but I also felt like I was being asked to be a certain kind of person. And again, it's like, this is a different kind of person. This is a different cultural dynamic. But again, I, that's not who I am. And didn't I'm, I didn't, I just never felt quite um, included. Yeah. There was a, there's a, I think there's a cliqueiness sometimes to small business culture that I think could be quite challenging. So I left and I was also fed up with retailers <coughs> temporarily. So I left to go and work at a mortgage startup for a bit. Um, and then in that time, my ex-boyfriend and I had decided that we were going to move abroad and he got a job in Delhi. And so we moved to India. Wow. For three years. I had no idea. And so that's, that's kind of where the business all started. So right. the, the, the key kind of moment of change was 
you know, there's me in my flat in Delhi, Ali, my ex. I mean, what was that like, culture shock wise? Like, is that? Yeah, it's I wild. feel like there's a, there's a big story it's here. It's absolutely wild. <laughs> so, I mean, that's a, a massive risk, right? Packing up, moving to the other side of the world, huge culture um, shock. It feels like a big risk. Well, this, you know, yes, it does. But, like, travel is my one big love. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's all I ever want to do. So, to pursue the thing I think is the most exciting, like, a no-brainer. Yep. And I was going with someone who I thought I was going to be with forever. Again, complete no-brainer to to make that happen. We'd had the conversation long before that that was what we were going to do. And it was a very, like, strategic move for him to, like, work out that he could be in a position where um, he's a journalist, where he'd get moved to to be foreign correspondent there and and that 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 would be, like, a natural transition. And so there was no real moment of risk like it all, it, at each juncture, it just yeah. felt like the next logical thing. And, and did you know what you were going to do? Well, I told everyone I was going to just like take some time off and volunteer, okay. which I think must have been genuinely hilarious to my friends and family. But everyone yeah. just like sweetly smiled and nodded as I was like, <laughs> yeah. I'm just going to like do some yoga. And, um, but, but, the, but crucially, I had some headspace which I filled really quickly by like stacking myself up with freelance work. Yeah, fine. But that was where the business began to not crystallize. It never, the business only crystallized in the last like year. It's where I began to take like step after step to move from being employed by someone to being freelance and then to quite quickly building out the start of a mini team that has then just grown really Super exciting. And was, was there, were there any challenges running that organization from Delhi? Was it always been something which is no. virtual? And... No, there was no Cause, issue. Cause when and was that... this? Was this pre-COVID? This is like... two years pre-COVID. Fine, fine. So I thought Copy Club would fall apart. Yeah. Because, and let's be clear, it was like 300 people on a mailing list at this yeah. point. It's not, it's not really a thing, but I just thought, well, that'll be the end of it. And it'll be a nice thing I did while I was in London and maybe I'll come back and resurrect it. And then I kept organizing the events kind of on WhatsApp and would just mm-hmm. like message someone and say, can you go to Pratt and pick up the pastries? And can you book the meeting room? And you just pulled in lots of favors. Yeah. And it, it kept happening. People kept telling me they loved it. I'd wake up every morning to like a ton of messages being like, that was amazing. Really? It was so great. And I was thinking, well, it's nothing to do. You know, I think naively, I kind of thought people were showing out of loyalty to me. Mm. I kind of was like, oh, maybe they're all coming as a favor. Mm. And I just owe everyone a lot. And then I sort of realized that actually the value, like that wasn't the value exchange at all. And also like how, how utterly farcical that I thought, (laughs) who owed me anything to turn, like what was that thought? And so no, it just kind of worked. And did COVID then like throw an entire spanner in the works? Obviously once you can't do meetups. No, COVID like, COVID was the thing. So what did you take everything virtual? We took everything virtual and our mailing list doubled in two weeks when mm. the UK went into lockdown. And yeah, that was five years of building, five years of networking, mm. two weeks of growth. Because wow. having a community mattered. Yeah. And before, I think it felt quite um, like woolly. Community's like, oh, that's nice. Like, oh, how sweet of you. You're making yeah. a community. And then when you didn't have a job, and you were at home and the world felt completely upside down, like 
people were literally clinging onto each other. Yeah, absolutely. And that felt like the most pivotal time for us. Yeah, I can imagine in terms of people wanting that support, people wanting that ability to connect with others, to have that feeling. COVID's a pressure cooker to accelerate all of that. Yeah. So where are you guys at now? What's the ambition with it? So now we have 1,200 members, about 6,000 people in our kind of wider mm -hmm. audience. Um, in the community itself, we have a recruitment business called Matchmaking. I'm really proud of in terms of the service we offer people, like genuinely getting talent, like, talent into roles that they would never have found yeah. otherwise you know that yeah. job that you didn't know you were looking for but when you read about it you're like that is actually it mm. i just was not going to google it um and then we have a team called brand hackers where we run outsource marketing teams for startups which is just the fruition of my freelance work just like on steroids and big because there really is a gap um and the ambition is to do this for a lot more people yeah you know i speak to someone every day who tells me they wish they'd found us earlier and that gets me. Yeah, of And course. I don't think I'm changing the world, but I do believe that being part of Copy Club makes you a little bit happier than not being part of it. I like that. That's really nice. Yeah. And how big is the team now? Uh, 18. Wow, that's insane. So when did you, when did you bring in your first member of the full-time team? Um, Hope, who's still with us, joined me just before the uk went into lockdown in delhi fine so we worked from, super exciting so she birth. so she was also living in living in delhi oh, and no i met her because she crashed my birthday party no way and <laughs> then i put something on instagram being like i need an assistant and she was like what about me and so we worked from my kitchen table often in my pajamas um and then from different sides of delhi because when the city went into lockdown there was like right. armed guards and you couldn't yeah. move so we were like 20 minute cab away from each other, but couldn't see each other. Yeah. And then we've both worked from all over the world. And yeah, yeah she was the first. And then last year it was a new hire every month. Wow. And then when did you leave Delhi? Because obviously COVID got really bad in India. Yeah, I left Delhi just before my 30th birthday. So to June, two years ago, mm -hmm. thinking it would be six weeks. So, so in, it went to Delhi with my ex, left him quite soon after we moved out, had a really tumultuous, as you can imagine. Of course. Um, we've been together for nine years, so. Uh, Never easy, that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Six months of being like hysterical and unhinged at the same time. Um, and then set up my own life there. And so moved into a flat with a girlfriend and kind of begin to, began to build a business in yeah. earnest, like came out of and my sort of like hibernation grief phase yeah. and, and started to make something. Um, and how did you find that? Because I've, I've been in a situation where I was building my last business. Um, my, I had a six year relationship that ended just as my business was picking up in a big way. Yeah. It's a difficult thing to manage. You know, I think there is the ability to throw yourself into building something, but it almost feels like, uh, for me anyway, at that time, putting off dealing with things by focusing on something else. I know this is quite a personal question, but you know, sure. it's big risk energy, so we always um, you know, get into the good stuff. But. Was I, I think, I think I've had so much control over the chronology and that, you know, there's a lot of like, it's a bootstrap business. Yeah. I'm a solo founder. I have very little accountability to anyone else. And so that's meant that I've never done anything at a pace that wasn't the pace I wanted at that point. Interesting. So I don't think that, um, 
like, you know, I worked four hours a day and trained for an endurance triathlon and went on loads of hinge dates and got drunk a lot. Yeah. Literally did very, very little work for a bit of time. Yeah. For a long time. And then I think began to feel more human. Yeah. And then threw myself into the business. Yeah. So I wouldn't say there was ever a moment where they felt disconnected. That's amazing. That's not to say that I haven't used work a lot throughout my life as a distraction from other of things. Of course, absolutely. Like I'm a, a deep down a workaholic. It's just is maybe lucky that I love the work I'm addicted to, yeah. but I need to be really clear that loving my work doesn't take away from the fact that I am hardline addicted to it. Yeah. And that's not a healthy relationship. No, totally. And I, it's a really it's a really interesting term. And I feel like it's a term I used to hear a lot more growing up, but seems to have really disappeared workaholic. Like it seems you to heard it when you were growing up. I heard it when I was growing up. Just people around me, people saying, oh I'm workaholic, but I feel like it's not a word like okay, we spend a lot of time on LinkedIn, right? I very rarely see the word workaholic come up. I see hustle culture, I see hustle porn. I see grind, I see all these things, but work workaholic. And I think it's because it's an addiction that capitalism rewards handsomely. And I think it's something which I believe an addict is an addict, mm. right? If you, if you have an addictive personality, if you have the potential to be an addict, you're going to be addicted to something. So pointing at something constructive rather than destructive, alcohol and drugs, gambling, whatever it might be, pointing it into work, pointing it into the gym, pointing it into something which is positive, I think is a really, really interesting concept. And I do think that the best founders are addicts in that way. And we had Nick Telson on this podcast the other day, and he was saying the same thing, which is, you know, the best founders he's invested in, who are the ones who, who like you, genuinely love their obsession with their work. So it's an interesting it's an interesting phrase, but I think it's a good one. And I don't think it's a, a negative thing in people who are ambitious. I find that so interesting. I don't I don't know if I like I guess your 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 hypothesis is we're all if you're if you're addicted, if you've got to put that addicted somewhere. Mm -hmm. You can't be addicted or not. And I think I grew up with a lot of addiction. Mm -hmm. um, it's like defined a lot of my childhood. And I really struggle with the idea that I can't not, the implication that I couldn't not be an addict. Mm. Um, and I, I think I know a lot of recovering addicts who mm -hmm. are now no longer addicts. It's interesting. So really I, interesting. I would kind of question yeah. the, 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 the hypothesis that you're like born an addict, therefore. I don't know if you're born an addict, but I think, I don't know. It's, it's a weird, because I, I similarly had a lot of experience with addiction growing up. Um, and I find that people can become addicted to recovery. You know, people can become all about recovery. People who do meetings every single day and, you know, they then become uh, mentors in that. And I don't think there's anything wrong with it. Like, I'm not, I'm not uh, denigrating in any way, but I see a lot of people get addicted to recovery. It's something else to go all in on. I think if you're, I don't know, I'm not a clinical psychologist by any means, uh, more, more a test case than anything, but I, I really do believe that it's about displacement of negative addiction with positive addiction. But it's fascinating. I mean, it's... Yeah, and I suppose that's the key distinction. I think mm. I, I ran a workshop on workaholism really recently. Interesting. I think the... I think the definition of addiction is something that has destructive 
implications for either you or the people around you. Interesting. And so positive addiction yeah. in that light yeah. is kind of an oxymoron, but like quite yes. a helpful one, which is to say that that's something other. It's interesting because I, and I guess this is why definitions are so, yeah. I, I say this, this could be the most boring podcast of all time. I'm about to say definitions yeah. are We're really just going to talk about diction definitions. No, no, right. diction's super interesting. Definitions may be less so, but my, diction of defini- my definition of addiction has always been foregoing normal human behavior mm. to satisfy whatever that addiction is. So I've never seen addiction as something inherently negative. Okay. As in, of course, it can be inherently, it can be if you're addicted to the wrong things, but it's more for me, um, you know, denying normal human behavior to fulfill that action. So I know I'm addicted to work because I've denied relationships, I've denied my own happiness, I've denied my social time, I've denied everything in order to keep building. So I still see I'm an addict, but to, you know, addicted to building in that way. Okay, but what that does in the context of workaholism is kind of say it's okay. Mm. And I think that's quite dangerous. I, is, yeah. I don't think workaholism is okay. I think having a passionate relationship to work where you're really Mm. committed is great but I think we have to find language to say there's a point where it's become unhealthy Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and there's a point where the impact on others is really extreme yeah yeah and that's why I find the word workaholic really important it's taken me a long time to get comfortable being able to use that like to basically say like like those who I grew up with who I kind of did tried to be better than different to i'm just the same i'm just Mm. putting my addiction somewhere else Mm -hmm. and i have to actively fight that addiction Mm -hmm. as i ask them to actively fight their addictions Mm. and it's not okay like it's not okay for you know people in my childhood to just keep drinking it's not okay for me to keep working interesting at the like at the expense of yeah. those who just deserve better. And, and I'll, I'll, I'm a deeply flawed human being, absolutely. And, and I have not figured out my work addiction yet, mm. for sure. It sounds like you've, you're much further along this journey than I am, which is amazing. I'm in that bit of like yeah. knowing yeah. whatever that window is where you know, but you don't have the answers. Yeah. <laughs> like I can see it. Yeah, 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 and yeah. I think I've got like some controls, but, but I, to your point, I'm like, why aren't we talking about this? Mm. Um, I don't know. Yeah. And well, I, I, I think I, it's because. Uh, yeah. oh, sorry to cut you off. No, I just think the way it's used, which is like, I'm a workaholic. Yeah. Like, if you've grown up with a alcoholic, that's not a funny word. No. No one's going to be like, no. I got my mug that says I'm an yeah. alcoholic. Like, no, it's not acceptable. Yeah, and so, totally. so, why do we kind of like make it into merch? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you know why? Because capitalism fucking loves it. That's what it is. Capitalism yeah. would love every single person to feel like a worker. And I see it. Now, we're different because we're building our own thing, right? Mm. And in many ways, at least the fruits of our workaholism, let's say, go towards what we're building. But I know people who are in corporate structures, for example, who are killing themselves. You know, six hours in work and just seeing them as a broken person, just like, you can't do this to yourself. So yeah, it's but uh, I think, but I think we, I you know, people around me would, would hear me hear me say that and be like, you're actually taking that comment and you're not being you're not recognizing yeah. that they will come to me and see me in that state, and just because I say, oh, but I'm running my own business, mm. they're like, I don't give a fuck, like mm. I really don't care why you're doing this. You as a human are not in a good place, yeah, and 
like unless you're solving some global health crisis mm. stop it yeah like stop being stupid yeah it's fascinating it really is fascinating and i think so many people i speak to are terrified about taking their foot off the pedal and trying to find balance and it's a scary thing i'm i'm one of them like i will be the first person to say i do not have balance in my life it's something i've struggled with since i was four years old having any sort of balance and severe ADHD definitely mm. heightens that and all mm, the other yeah. things but I'm still very early on in that journey of trying to find balance yeah. and you know the rewards of the imbalance have been great um, which is why sometimes it makes it it was like an addiction right I mean not in every sense but the high of success but the destruction of relationships friendships all those other things it is an addiction it really is um, fascinating. I've got a few questions that I'd like to ask you. Sure. Okay. What is the single biggest risk you've taken and what was the outcome? Okay, I actually think the single biggest risk I've taken is last year I said yes to kayaking across the channel. Okay, that's pretty and a big risk. The reason that I think that is a... So the reason I choose that is that it's, it's like a big decision I made with absolutely zero context. I got a WhatsApp from my cousin and said, do you want to kayak across the channel? I said, yes. And then the next morning she was like, cool, I've booked it. You owe me two grand. It's like, sorry, what? <laughs> like, what are we talking about? How far is the channel? What is a kayak? Like, I like, and it, you know, and like I did it and it was fun and it wasn't, it was just like a little thing. But I think the, the <laughs> I think there are so few moments in my life where I've just blindly said yes. I think I can think of a ton of like very calculated decisions yep. I've made, but that to me feels very different. I mean, that screams big risk. Yeah, no. I, I, I just I, felt I like that. sure. And I think maybe that's a fun challenge to all of us. Like, how do we do that more? hundred percent. I love that. Okay. What are you proudest of? The culture in Coffee Club. And it comes back to what I was saying earlier about never feeling like I fitted in. I really hope that I've built an environment where everyone feels like their view matters and that they are heard and that they are safe and supported. And I think it's really interesting in the context of what you were saying around like the, the ideology by which you've employed mm. people, which is like money is really important. And I don't think we're the best pay, like I don't think we're the um, most generous in the industry but I think we are home. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I don't think work should be a family, but I do think mm -hmm. you should be in an environment where you can feel able to be you and to thrive on the terms that you want to do that. Yeah. And that isn't for everyone, you know, like if yeah. you want to go and make shed loads of money and be on a super, super tough growth stint and, um, you know, have a kind of make or break career, we're not the place for you. Um, but we are the place for people who really want to build something and want to feel like they've got a gang around them that are going to help do that. It's amazing. I love that. It's a great answer. Really, really interesting. Um, okay, my next question for you is, is there anything in your life that you wish you'd done differently? So we actually haven't talked about my weird relationship with money. Okay. Which... Under I'm super excited for this already, by the way. <laughs> which underpins loads of my attitude to risk. Okay. So I am financially comically risk averse. And 
that's because when I was growing up, there was times we had loads of money and times we had no money and we had no money. It was incredibly toxic and made things horrible. And so to me, financial instability equals hell. That formula is like stone set in my brain. And so I will like my mum calls it squirreling. Like mm -hmm. I will squirrel and squirrel and squirrel until there's like, you know, I am ready for the toughest winter. Uh, like uh, this recession, uh, like I've got this. Like I am literally like untouchable in terms of like the way that I'm building. Amazing. Like building financial um, kind of like solid yeah. ground. And that's um, good in some ways, but it's definitely borderline bonkers. Mm. Um, and I- Is it another addiction? Addiction to squirreling. I don't know if it's an addiction. Yeah. I think it's just like a hang up, like a yeah, big old hang yeah, up. Yeah. Um, I've, you know, I've never raised money. Yep. I've never even contemplated it. Yep. And I get like, the conversation comes up all the time. And I'm like, no, like not interested. It's great. Like, well, well, and this is, this is where, I, this is kind of the, the failure risk, the regret question. Like it's one way. But my, um, my like, what if is what would have happened if I'd like gone on the therapy boot camp age 22 that like got me, you know, if I'd spent six weeks getting through this weird hang up and mm. working out a relationship where I could feel more measured mm. and less defined by terror and more motivated by like a mixed outcome. Yeah. I don't know where I would be. Yeah. And I think that's the question that I'll always, you know, to the, to the like fulfilled potential, that's the thing that's going to stop me fulfilling potential. Super interesting. I love that. It's, it's the thing that's going to mean answer. I'm never in the gutter. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Like yeah, it's, a, it's a really healthy safety. hundred percent. Catch. Yeah. But I'm, I'm always going to ask myself. It's fascinating. What if. And if anyone's listening to this is like a money, I'm desperate to find like a money therapist. Yeah. I feel like Ooh. there's got to be someone. If not, there's, there's the next idea. The last thing I need is another idea, as yeah. my team keep telling me. But, um, but yeah, I just think there's something in that. Like, I don't think I'm the only one that's got a weird... I, I have weird a weird... I'm, but I'm just on the totally other end of the spectrum. I, as soon as I came... So similarly to you, we had very little money growing up at yeah. times. Sometimes we did have money, sometimes we didn't. My dad was an entrepreneur of varying levels of success. And there were years that we didn't have income and, and, and all those other things. But as soon as I got liquidity for the first time, I did pretty much the stupidest thing you can do with money, which is invest it all in startups. Mm. Uh, I say stupidest with, you know, very tongue in cheek, but, um, you know, I'm, I have the biggest risk appetite, mm. but it's weird how we've similar upbringing in that sense, but totally different response in the sense of yeah. that I've almost gotten too comfortable with that level of risk. Mm. And it's, but it's not good that it's, we need to meet somewhere in the middle, exactly. right? We need to meet somewhere in the middle. Uh, no, that's super interesting. Okay, um, so my next question for you is, what does it take to be successful? So I, I spend a lot of time writing this down. I think it's uh, about the way I want to live. So it's being able to exercise every day. It's being able to have good time with friends and family. It's being in a space I find rewarding. It's doing work I love. And it's having the financial freedom not to wake up in the night worrying about stuff. And part of the challenge, so I had like, I had a weird goal that I wanted a 
PT every day. Uh-huh. It's like, if I can have personal training every day, I've made it. Yep. And then a few years ago, I was in Delhi and Delhi went into lockdown and I was really into my CrossFit at the time and called the guy who was coaching me and said, can we do sessions online? And we did sessions on Zoom every day and we did that for years. And so there was just this moment very early in my life where I went through my list of success and was like, oh, I mean, I've done it all, but I've just done it in such a like hustle way. Yeah. So like, sure, I've got my PT every day, but he's in Delhi. He's an amazing guy. I'm paying him in rupees. We do it on Zoom. Yeah, I share it with yeah. my best mate. Like everything on the list I'd done, but like I'd like hacked all of yeah. it. And I think, it, yeah, it's, it was an interesting moment of like, well, have I made it? Is this, is this it? And, and it kind of, there was the voice that was like, no, it's not it. Mm. Like, must go, must go, must go. And then the other voice that was like, well, what if it is? And what would it take to sit in this and to like recognize that and go back to kind of like the ethos we were talking about earlier, which is like, we genuinely all have no idea how long we have in the world. Mm. And maybe that's, maybe that is success. Yeah, love that. Another great answer. So success is kind of trying to sit in where I am. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's really nice. It's a, a peace in many ways, right? Yeah. That does feel like success, peace. It's definitely not a number in a bank account or yeah. press release that says you've exited to someone who for some, you know, none of that. Yeah, I agree. And that is zero guarantee of happiness alongside that. Yeah. Zero guarantee of happiness well, alongside yeah, that. Yeah, I just don't, I don't think it's the success to chase. Okay. Um, my last question Ooh. for you is, 15-year-old Lottie walks into this room right now. What are you telling her? That you're going to be great. Yeah. Simple. Yeah, she... Yeah, she worked really hard. <laughs> and, like, put a lot of blood, sweat and tears into everything. And not that much time into what she wanted. Amazing. Lottie, thank you so much for coming on the show. I really thank appreciate you. it. Thanks for you want to plug? Join the Copy Club. If anyone um, is yeah, involved in marketing in any way, Copy Club is the place to be. Um, and if anyone is a financial therapist, call me. And me. <laughs> call us. <laughs> Amazing. Thanks so much. That was great. Pleasure. I really appreciate that.